This podcast episode from Oncology Data Advisor was recorded live at the 2023 American Society of Hematology annual meeting in San Diego. Thanks for listening. Be sure to visit oncdata.com, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and follow us on social media for more exclusive content and interviews from the meeting. So welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. Today we're here at the ASH annual meeting and I'm joined by one of our fellows for our members, Dr. Reepta Talker. Hi, it's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, yeah, it's wonderful to have finally met you in person last night and to be able to chat and everything, so. <laughs> I know, it's like so great that we're finally able to start doing things in person now. Yes, definitely. Um, so now you're presenting a poster tonight on end-of-life outcomes in patients with acute myeloid leukemia receiving non-curative chemotherapy. Um, so to give a little background about this, um, why did you decide to investigate this? So I guess for me, when I started palliative care, one of the most eye-opening experiences was doing my hospice rotation. I would drive house to house, see patients um, getting hospice at home. And it was just such a unique way to look at hospice and all of the um, things that we can do to support patients in their home. But then when I switched to Hemonc and I started seeing leukemia patients, it was really heartbreaking for me because we couldn't do a lot of these um, things that we do with outpatient hospice for our leukemic patients just because the concept of hospice doesn't really fit well with AML. And um, that's part of where like the idea for my research project was born, just to kind of get an idea of what we really need to help improve outcomes, at least for the end of life portion for AML patients, so that we could design a better program for them. Right, it's definitely a huge gap and you know, a great avenue to investigate. Um, so how did you go about designing the study? So I think usually with end-of-life outcomes, the patient population self-selects itself. Um, I looked at basically that a year over a chart at Northwell where patients that were diagnosed with AML had all passed away. And within that population, I picked a very small selection. So these were patients receiving non-curative therapy for AML because it's one of the other problems you have with AML is most of the time the goal for your treatment is cure. So it's very, very hard to stop a treatment that's going to cure your patient, um, even if they're dying. So it's, it's really like at the very end where you have to stop treatment. But when you have a non-curative population, th that's your opportunity to. So from, from basically all of the patients that had died, I excluded anyone that was transplant eligible. And then um, I, I looked at the, what treatments they got after, like basically later line treatment. So a hypomethylating agent with venetoclax. And uh, what results did you find in the study? So it's really sad. Um, we had about 84 patients that were included in the study, but half of these died while taking dis uh, some sort of hypomethylating agent with venetoclax. So I had a different analysis for those, but the 42 that continued on to next line treatment were divided into three groups. So about 15 of these patients ended up getting best supportive care, which means only chemotherapy, Oh, sorry, no chemotherapy, but blood transfusions. Um, and then within this, two, within that 42 like patient population, there was a subgroup that went on to next line chemotherapy, and then another smaller group that just went to um, hospice. So from these groups, what um, we found was that the median overall survival for patients that went on to next line treatment was around 50 days, a little bit over, like maybe 56. And patients that went on to best supportive care didn't have that significantly lower of an overall survival. 
Um, and the median overall survival for our hospice patients was seven days, which really makes sense because if you have a patient that's transfusion dependent, they don't really have much time when you can't transfuse them. So um, the thing is, it's the study is retrospective. There's a lot of, it's a very small patient population, so obviously there's much more that we need to do to really extrapolate. But what this is telling me is that maybe we shouldn't be doing chemotherapy after um, decidabine or like another hypomethylating agent with monoclex stops working on our patients. And maybe it might just be better to monitor these patients and treat um, supportively. But like which subset this would be better for, I think we need to do much more <laughs> research on. Yeah. Um, so going along with this, what are um, some other opportunities you've identified either through this research or you know similar research for improving end-of-life care for this population? So I think one of the things that really shocked me from what I found in our study was basically the ability of our patients to receive goal concordant care. So it's really tough to measure this retrospectively. So what I used as a surrogate marker was the proportion of patients that had a most form, so like code status that was discussed and filled out, or also a healthcare proxy. And um, about 80% of our patients did have these filled out regardless of the treatment outcomes. But of the patients that chose um, do not resuscitate and do not intubate, 42 patients, more than half made these decisions within the last 24 hours of life. So it's, and if you can imagine what that looks like for a patient, that's right. just absolutely terrible. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, it's when you start these patients on treatment, they're already slightly older, they're very frail, you know you're not going to cure them, so there's really no reason to wait so long to discuss at right. least these wishes for the patients. And I think that would be a great opportunity where we can intervene on interventions earlier on. And, um, but like, when to consider transitioning them from next-line treatment to best supportive care versus hospice, I think that needs so much more research. And especially with all of the trials that are coming out with different lines like Selenexor in this population, um, I, you know, who knows what will come out next and what would actually be better for our patients. Mm -hmm. Definitely, those are very important avenues to, to investigate. Um, so do you have any next step, uh, steps planned for this research or additional research in this area? So I picked a very, very tiny, small population that had passed away. So what I do want to do moving forward is also expand this population to include um, patients that were getting curative intent. And what I'm hoping to do is get an idea of their palliative care needs throughout the spectrum of their illness. And what I really expect is probably around the time of each relapse, there's going to be a higher symptom burden or... Um, like a need to address like things like goal concordant care and then at diagnosis and then towards the end of life is where you would also need much more aggressive palliative interventions. But at least having an idea of where things are needed and when, and, sorry, so like what things and when they're needed would help design a prospective trial that I could at least intervene to get better palliative care for AML patients. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for explaining this research to us and also thank you for, you know, embarking in this research and helping to improve outcomes for these patients. Oh no, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> so I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, to wrap up, um, how, I also want to ask, how has your experience been of attending ASH as a fellow and what kind of, uh, you know, like opportunities have you, have you seen here? Oh, it's been absolutely amazing. Every trainee should sign up for ASH if you can. <laughs> so um, ASHA Palooza was one of my favorites and it was just really nice to meet other co-fellows and um, one of the things I love about ASH is there's just so much like so much help that you get whether it's from education with these great lectures, meeting other co-fellows to realize um, 
you know, and share with your bonding training experience, and then also networking, you really, really grow a lot. And um, just meet, um, like meeting other people here that are also just as passionate about hematology really helps for so much, like whether it's job hunting, interdisciplinary research, or project collaborations, it, it's a really great way to um, just get to know more about the field. Absolutely, yeah. Is there anything um, in particular you've seen here that you're planning on bringing back to you know, like your other fellows at your institution or anything maybe you'll share with patients when you get back? So, oh boy, that's, that's a good <laughs> question. I think one of the things I really, really appreciated was they had a lot of networking opportunities for women in medicine, especially in hematology. And one of the, and one of the talks that they had there, as well as at Ashapalooza, was about imposter syndrome and how um, we often just use the phrase imposter syndrome when something doesn't really fit for a population, meaning... Um, uh, meaning the world isn't always built for women or minorities. Like you look at surgical instruments, things are designed for a man's hands and women's have smaller hands, right? So trying to just reinforce that it's not imposter syndrome, you belong in medicine is a really great like confidence boost and to help like build other women up is something I'm definitely going to take back. Awesome. Yeah, that, that's really amazing. Um, well, this is so great talking with you today. So thank you so much for stopping by and looking forward to, you know, having many more interviews at the Fellows Forum. <laughs> oh, thank you for having me. It's so nice to meet you guys, too. I hope you have fun. Thanks. You too. <laughs>